Second Kings chapter number six, we'll begin reading in verse number 24. And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria. Behold, they besieged it, watch this, until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver. Now we find that this phrase, pieces of silver, is used. There's no actual monetary value assigned to these pieces of silver. I believe that the famine and and, and all that's going on here in the city has totally demolished their economy. I mean, you talk about a time worse than the Great Depression. They have pieces of silver left over from before the siege, but they don't even know what the value of that silver is. So uh, the, the Word of God, that's not a mistake, these uh, pieces of silver, fourscore, 80 pieces of silver, is what you would have to give for an ass's head. Now, that's an unclean animal. And, you know, I, I have seen uh, what people that slaughter animals, sometimes they'll save the head of a cow or a hog. I'm sure that some of you old-timers that used to butcher, you, you know about the different things. I mean, you, they'd make head cheese out of stuff. I, I remember when I was at uh, my good friend Max's dad's, we used to go and slaughter hogs. He had a nice setup there. And uh, we were, they had killed some some hogs earlier, or maybe some had butchered some cows. And uh, we took a break for lunchtime, and we're sitting around Sister Patsy's table eating lunch. And out the front window, you could see uh, one of the, there's a dairy farm across the street, and you could see a big dog carrying off, and if I'm not mistaken, it was a cow's head. And he was carrying off a cow's head across the street and had stole it from Brother Robinson. And we looked out the window and, hey, Brother Robbie, look, that dog's stealing your cow's head. He was upset. They're taking that cow's head. He had plans for that cow's head. And I'm like, you know what, you'll be all right. (laughs) And, uh, oh, by the way, what are we eating? (laughs) But uh, seriously... There's not a whole lot of nutritional value in a donkey's head. And I guess the the point I'm trying to make is these were some extremely desperate times and desperate measures. And you think that that's bad enough, watch the rest of the verse. It says four score pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. You know, it's interesting how the commentators always do a two-step around things that they don't understand in the Bible. Like, you know, it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle. I didn't say that right. Than a, a camel to go through a needle and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. Etc. And, and they talk about that, that, that camel going through the eye of a needle and they say that's not talking about an actual sewing needle. That was a place there in, uh, in the Middle East where it was uh, like a really narrow passageway between a cliff. And that's not what the Lord was saying. He was talking about, look, it's really tough for a rich man to go to heaven. It's as tough as a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's gonna take a miracle. That's the whole point. And so the commentators say, oh, this, this dove's dung is, was just a uh, common terminology for a type of pulse that they would make out of some type of a bean or a grain. And it'd be like we would call cornmeal mush or something like that. But I don't believe that for a moment. I believe that they are so hungry and famished that they would even use some of their coins, their money, just to buy the scrapings from where the pigeons and the doves would land. That's how desperate that they were for food. And we're getting ready to find out uh, some even more desperate measures. Uh, in fact, we ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 26, And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall... 
there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, whence shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? This is sarcasm, total sarcasm. Hey, if God's not going to help you, what do you, what do you expect me to do, lady? Verse 28, And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him, and I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him, and she hath hid her son. And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the woman, that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so, and more also to me, if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat shall stand on him this day. I'll comment on that here in just a few minutes. But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him, and the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See ye how this son of a murderer hath sent me to take away mine head? Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him, and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now look at chapter 7 and verse number 1. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, Notice the economies and value of the money is restored. And two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said. Must have been picking up a little bit on the king's sarcastic attitude and air. What did he say? He said, behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven... Might this thing be? And he said, Behold, this is Elisha speaking to the man's sarcastic, uh, sarcastic statement. And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of the windows of heaven. Father, Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit here today. Lord, it's good to sing the songs of Zion. It's good to sing uh, this great hymn today, how tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. I pray that this hymn would draw our hearts closer to you and we would recognize, Lord, when our life is dull and boring and meaningless Lord, the, the reason is because we have lost that sweetness and that closeness with the Lord Jesus Christ. Restore that sweetness and that love. And I pray, Father, as I bring this message on the windows of heaven today, Lord, we pray that it would help each and every one of us. It would encourage us, instruct us, give us what we need. If anyone here today is without Jesus Christ as their Savior, speak to their heart. Draw them as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A little background here of the text that we just read, and certainly I think that it goes without saying that this is a, this is a pretty intense passage of Scripture. In fact, I thought about it. It's like, you know what? I'm going to be saying some things here about what, you know, a couple of mothers were doing or planning to do with their, their sons that, you know what? We're going to have kids in the auditorium and uh, listen, don't think that that didn't concern me because I don't want to put disturbing thoughts or images in children's minds. But I've learned from experience that that which is true from the Word of God, God always says things very tactfully. And you know, the reality of it is, is that children 
need to understand that there's a great big world out there. There's no need to be, uh, to have a spirit of fear and anxiety, but at the same token, the best way to face fear is with faith, not with ignorance. And I'm fully aware that there are things out there in a wicked world that uh, it's not time for children to know and to understand. But you know what? This is the Word of God. And God wants us to understand that, hey, there's some really, really serious things going on here in uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. I mean, I don't, I don't think it can get much worse than this, do you? Uh, certainly you'd have to say that it's about as bad as it could get. And yet I read prophecy that there's a day coming on planet Earth that's going to be way worse than this. And so we need to be prepared. But a little bit of background of the text. In chapter 6, verses 13 through verse 17, the host of Syria uh, have compassed Dothan, and they're trying to get Elisha. And the reason that they want Elisha is because the king of Syria was told that all of their military secrets are being revealed to the king of Israel. Everything that they're whispering in a back room, God Almighty is whispering in the ear of Elisha. And Elisha is going and tattling to the king and letting them know all of the strategic plans of the Syrians. Now, I thank God that we have a nation with a strong military. But you know, the reality of it is that a weak military with God on your side is going to be way better than the most dynamic military that you can imagine without God on your side. You know, God's not impressed by our military might. And I know that at least for today, right now, we have the technology and the ability that pretty much most of our perceived or real enemies in this world, we have enough firepower to pretty much take care of them on short notice. We have drones and we have bombs and we have satellites and we have superior weaponry and technology. But I submit to you here this this morning that that very well may not always be the case. You know, it really wouldn't take that many natural disasters for God to turn this nation as well as the superpower nations of this world upside down on our head. I was thinking about this the other day. Somebody was talking about prepping. Uh, prepping for, you know, the, the, the time when we can't get the things that we need. And, you know, I kind of went through my list and, you know, we try to do a few things at, at our house just in case that, you know, we can't get the things that we want or need. But the reality of it is we live in the city. We don't have a well. And even if we did have a well, we'd be probably dependent upon electricity, right? I mean, if they shut down our electricity and you can't get gas at the gas station, we're toast. Well, no, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't be able to make toast, would we? Well, you can make toast on a campfire if you had enough wood to burn. But you know what? I cut down most of my trees on my property. I'd have to probably come and cut down trees on your property. And then you'd shoot me because you need the trees on your property because you don't have electricity. Are you getting the picture here? I got to thinking, it's like, you know what, we can prep for a lot of things, but our whole culture and society has weakened and softened to the point to where for us to really become self-sufficient, <laughs> not, not just not going to go over very well. And so what I try to do is I try to do what the Bible says. I try to be prudent and foresee the evil and hide myself. That's what a prudent, wise person does. But I'm not interested in having a spirit of fear and worrying about things that may not come to pass in my lifetime. And even if they did, all I'm going to do is delay the inevitable for a few days. Yeah, I don't know if that's striking a chord with you here this morning or not, but the bottom line, be wise, be prepared, but don't have a spirit of fear because you can only do so much. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. Bottom line, folks, is we need God. 
And Elisha had God, and Elisha was gracious enough to share God's word with a very wicked and pagan king. In chapter 6, verse 18 through verse 23, we see that God smites the Syrians with blindness, and they are led directly into capture in Samaria. Elisha tells the king to feed them and release them. Now, this is something that the king didn't want to do, but because Elisha was responsible for their capture, the king uh, gave in to Elisha's request, fed them, released them. They said they'd never return, and they didn't return. But in verse 24 through verse 31, we find some new recruits come from Syria. And they come, and that's where we find... Israel, they are besieged in Samaria by the new recruits from Syria, and they come and they besiege the city and block out all commerce until the famine gets so bad that women are eating their own children. That's pretty bad, folks. I I don't think it can get any worse than that. But you know, I said I'd comment on it a little bit later, but verse number 31, so interesting, so relevant. The king, all these bad things are happening, and how does the king respond? He blames the preacher. He blames Elisha for all of these horrible things that are going on. Now, this is a typical trait that he learned from his father Ahab. In fact, Ahab blamed Elijah... Uh, the predecessor of Elisha for all of the famine and everything going on. In 1 Kings eighteen seventeen, it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Now listen, I, 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 I look at the ministry that God has given this preacher, and I compare it to great men of God of yesterday. And really not that far back yesterday. And I would have to say, wow, they would look at my ministry and say, wow, that guy is really milk toast. It's a true story. My wife and I were, were waiting for our food the other day and she found a radio station that had J. Vernon McGee on it. I grew up with J. Vernon McGee. And uh, listen, compared to when, when, when my family became independent Baptists and we got around some of the independent fundamental King James Bible believing Baptists, I remember thinking that, wow, you know, Brother McGee, while he was very instrumental in helping my parents spiritually, I mean, at that time when I was growing up, he was the best thing that they had. And he was a huge blessing to them. And I can't remember how many times that I have inadvertently heard him as my mom and dad were seemed like they were always playing his cassette tapes in the house. And when I got around some fundamental independent Baptists, I thought, wow, you know, he was he was pretty um, pretty soft. We were listening to him on the radio the other day, and I'm like, wow. We have softened so much in modern Christian culture that I'm listening to J. Vernon McGee, who used to be soft, and I'm like, wow, he's rough. He's telling it like it is. And I hope you're getting the picture I'm trying to paint that we've drifted so far and it's happened so slow, we don't even recognize that when a man of God tells it like it is, it's almost shocking because people are too used to hearing all of the psychobabble and all of the self-help and feel-good psychology of men of God who are supposedly preaching, but really the gist of their preaching is not to try to get you closer to God, but rather for you to think that they're wonderful. I don't think that Brother McGee cared whether people thought he was wonderful. Now, whether you like him or dislike him, that's not the point. The point is, is that um, God's men need to first and foremost be accurate representatives of God and His Word. Amen? But the preacher always gets blame. I, I've had times where in my milk toast ministry, if you will that 
I've gotten blamed for standing up for the truth. Well, you wrecked my day. You wrecked this event because you stood up for what was right. And you're, you're judgmental and pharisaical and all of that. And you just, you look at that and go, why would they make that judgment over somebody that's just trying to lovingly tell them the truth and live the truth. Well, it just goes with the territory. The preacher gets blamed, but we don't, we're not going to take the time this morning, but if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 28, verse 47 through 62, you can look it up. God told Israel, they said, if you don't serve me, he said, this is what's going to happen to you. And everything that we just read about this famine and eating their children and all of these things is exactly what God prophesied and said would happen in Deuteronomy 28, verse 47 through 62. Hey, is it the preacher's fault? Is it God's fault? No, God gave the warning. He wrote it in His Word. He sent a man to remind them and to say, "'Thus saith the Lord.'" The preacher and God is not the bad guy. The rebel is the bad guy. The rebel is the cause of the problems. Now, once again, look at verse number 2 of chapter 7 here of our text, where this servant leaned upon the hand of his uh, the king, and he said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven... Might this thing be? You know what we can surmise out of this statement is that the servant of the king believed that God could bless them. But he didn't believe that God would bless them. What a huge difference in believing that God can do something and believing that God will do something. And so he made this statement, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, well, I got news for him, I got news for you, there are windows. There are indeed windows in heaven. We live in some troubling times today, but truly we are experiencing nothing compared to what has been and what will be. Hey, what do we worry about today? Uh, We worry about every time that the news says that COVID's on the rise, every time that we hear about a rioting in the town, every time we hear that there could be a hurricane that passes through our general area, what do we do? We rush down to the store because we want to make sure that we get our favorite brand of bread before it's all gone. You know, here during the last year, we've I've had times in the middle of July where I went to the store just down the road, went to the bread aisle because my wife said, I want you to pick up a loaf of bread. I get to the bread aisle, there's nothing there. And so I think, wow, it's July, it's going to snow. Literally, I mean, no bread. But then, you know, you look and it's like, well, that's really an overstatement. There was a few loaves of bread there. And then over to the far left, there's some tortillas, which tortillas, believe it or not, are bread. Personally, I love tortillas. I mean, they're one of my favorites. I mean, you got tortillas, you got biscuits, and then you got loaf bread. Some people call it light bread or white bread. Brother Runyon called it loaf bread. Because the reason you call it loaf bread is because the woman was loafing and didn't get the biscuits made. (laughs) Brother Billy Kelly used to rip on canned biscuits all the time. And you know, there's some canned biscuits that actually are quite good today. You know, some of those, I like those kind that you, you peel the layers off. And even the cheap ones, and I don't know what they cost today, but I remember you could buy a, a, the, the cheap canned biscuits for, I don't know, 27 cents back in the 80s, I think. And you know what? They're great as long as you don't expect them to taste like grandma's biscuit. You just got to treat them as something totally different. They're not so bad. 
But I guarantee you that these inhabitants of Samaria would have been tickled to death to have a can of cheap biscuits. Amen? They would have been thrilled to have anything. Today, we worry about not having our favorite brand of bread or being able to get our favorite brand of toilet paper. Arg! It's the end of the world! I had to buy cheap toilet paper. Now listen, I understand that, you know, good quality toilet paper is valuable thing. Don't ever underestimate that. And I know you're thinking, don't get too crude on us, preacher. I'm not going to, but the reality of it is that it is pretty important, especially in this day and age. And so, yeah, I don't want to run out of toilet paper. I understand that there are other things that uh, that work, but... Um, Anyhow, beware of leaves of three. That's all I can say. But listen to this, Jeremiah 12, verse number five. If thou hast run with the footmen and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein thou trustest, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? The reality of it is, folks, is that we think that we're having it so rough because we can't get the things that we want at the grocery store. You know, when COVID first hit a year and a half ago, and literally you could not, you couldn't get chicken, you couldn't get toilet paper, you couldn't get paper towels, you couldn't get, uh, I can remember where you couldn't get eggs, and certainly you couldn't get bread. And a lot of those things, it's like you go to the grocery store, they don't have them. We're still having a hard time finding canning lids for canning. I I, I don't know what you would think after a year and a half, they'd figure out how to make canning lids again. I wonder if there's a conspiracy behind that. They don't want you to be able to put up your own food and be self-sufficient. You know, I'm not a conspiracy guy. But, but I can see the potential if, you know, what I read about the Antichrist coming, a one world system, one world government, the, the devil does not want you to be self-sufficient. He does not want you to be uh, patriotic and individualistic and he doesn't want, he, he just wants to break down every difference and every barrier so that the whole world is amalgamated into uh, into one mentality, one religion, one race, one economy, one everything. He does not want individualism and freedom. He wants everybody to just give up all of their freedoms, be dependent upon someone because he's going to show up on the scene and he wants everybody dependent upon the Antichrist. So yeah, I can see there's some conspiracy going on. And it's just interesting that all of the things that are, are really somewhat necessities are the things that they can't figure out how to make more of. Does, doesn't it seem interesting to you that they haven't figured that out in almost two years? But we don't have it bad, folks. It's really quite good. We were complaining at the beginning of COVID that we couldn't get chicken, we couldn't get the ground beef that we're used to buying. I mean, we're at we're at Costco, and 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 we're just like, wow, man, this is scary. This is rough. And I just kind of chuckled. I look, it's like, you know what? We got two two buggies. I'm using the right terminology. We got two buggies full of groceries. We're not tough. And this is not tough. It's just different than what we're used to. And so complaining makes us weak. Gratitude makes us strong. And so never forget, even when things aren't the way that you want them to be, think about Samaria and think about the dove's dung and think about boiling a donkey's head just so that you can get a little bit of sustenance and you say, you know what, America's getting pretty rough, but we have a lot to be thankful for. Now, in light of all that, God is invisible and silent today, but never for a moment believe that He is not present 
And more importantly, don't ever let the devil make you believe that God doesn't care. Because that's what the servant of the king was thinking. You know what? If the Lord made windows of heaven, would this be? God can, but I don't think that God will because he's so distant, he's so silent, and it just seems like he doesn't even care about what we're going through. Well, folks, there are indeed windows in heaven. Window number one, if you look with me at verse, uh, I want to say the window number one is the window of provision. In 2 Kings 7, verse number 3, it says, There were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? And so they hatched this plan. They said, Let's go out to the Syrians. And, you know, if they kill us, we're just going to sit here and die anyways. It's better to do something than to do nothing. And so they went out, and they 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 were going to just see maybe... If we go out there and ask them for some food, who knows? Maybe they'll give us some food. And they go out there and they find that the camp of the Syrians has been deserted, but all the stuff's still there. And that's where that's what God used to bring the provision to the city of Samaria. Folks, God will provide. God does indeed provide for His people in spite of our apostasy, in spite of the king God provides for them. You've got a wicked king. If you think that God can't take care of you because you think that our president is wicked, then you got God's got news for you. God's not limited by what others do. If God wants to provide for you, He'll provide for you. He can and He will. In spite of your belief. In Psalm 78, verse number 19. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? The answer is yes. Yes, he can furnish a table for you in the wilderness. He can provide if we only will believe. There is a window of provision in heaven. Window number two is the window of judgment. Uh, turn back to the beginning of the Bible to Genesis chapter number seven. Genesis chapter number seven. Now for nearly, uh, I, I guess, uh, 1500 to 2000 years, depending on whose um, uh, Bible um, chronology that you look at, you find that the human race from the Garden of Eden has just continue to decline and decline and decline. No doubt, the what I believe to be the satanic influence of Genesis chapter number 6 and the influence and cohabitation of evil spirits with the daughters of men and so forth certainly brought an excessive amount of evil and perversion into human society prior to the flood. But God puts up with it for... Nearly 2,000 years. People were living long lives during this day and age. No doubt, Noah, Methuselah, and Enoch, they saw some pretty hideous things in the culture in which they lived. Genesis 7, verse number 10, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventh day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The window of judgment was opened, and God rained down judgment upon planet earth. Keep in mind, Noah had been preaching righteousness for 120 years while he was preparing the ark. Now, that's a long time. I've seen a lot happen in the time I got right with the Lord in 1986, and I've been serving the Lord ever since then, and I've seen a lot of things change in America. I've seen a lot of changes in Christianity and in churches. And some of you that have been saved and been around church and right with God for a long time, uh, you would have to agree with me that things just continue 
to decline and go downhill. I mean, things that used to would have been just, I can't believe that they did that. And now, not only is it tolerated, but it's almost glorified what some people do in the name of God and Christianity. God put up with mankind for a long, long time until it was time for Him to open the windows of judgment. I thank God that God is being merciful to our nation. I I wonder sometimes how much that God's going to put up with our country. And you know, when you think about these windows of judgment and these windows of provision, you ought to do a little bit of history research. And you know, back in the early 1900s, this nation produced the 19th Amendment, which basically outlawed alcoholic beverages. And if you study the 1920s up toward the end of that decade was a time of prosperity, uh, perhaps like maybe we've never seen. Maybe the last 10, 15 years we've seen America exceed the prosperity of the, the 1920s. But by the time you get to the end of the 1920s, you've got a lot of things going on. Look, prohibition is still in force, but the people, you have more and more people that are violating the law, and the use of alcohol is becoming more and more a problem. And I look at that, and I see that God blessed this nation when this nation said, hey, we want to make a law that is righteous and protects people. And by the way, alcohol is a, is a very dangerous thing. You know, you want to solve many of the problems of our culture, such as perversion, such as brutality, people being abused, children being abused, and all different types of abuse. Take away the alcohol. And you'll find that there's a whole lot less of it. My wife and I, before we were married, we used to go every other Monday to a nursing home. And uh, there was a resident that showed up that she was fairly new, and she was definitely up there in years. And when she first showed up, she still had a little bit of sharpness of mind. Now, it, it wasn't very many months later that you could tell that her mind was just getting very dull. But when we first started meeting her and talking to her, her mind was fairly sharp. And she started telling us about her husband. We asked about her husband, and she began to weep. And she started to tell us the story of how during Prohibition, her husband was one of the most wonderful men and husbands that you could imagine. But she said after Prohibition, she said it all changed. He began to drink, and he began to get abusive, and She looked back and she's telling us her life story and you could tell that her life turned from practically a utopia to a nightmare when the 21st Amendment was put into law that repealed prohibition. Now, the news media is not going to tell you that. They're going to tell you this this, uh, erroneous lie that, well... Repealing prohibition made everything better because all prohibition was doing was making, uh, you know, a lot more organized crime and making people break the law. That's nonsense. Now, I understand people are going to do what they're going to do. But that doesn't mean that it's good for society. All I know is that after prohibition was made a law, it just sure does seem like it was a time of blessing and prosperity when the American public, not necessarily the lawmakers, but when the American public began to turn away from prohibition, guess what happened? The Great Depression. And it didn't end in 1933 when prohibition was repealed. The Listen, they, they kind of talk about it ending, but it didn't end All you had is you had a president that came up with all of these deals to where, look, with this Great Depression, people can't take care of themselves, so the government's going to take care of everybody. 
That's when we changed as a nation. And there's not a year that goes by, but what the government doesn't gradually take over more and more of the care of the citizens and take away little by little the freedom and the liberty. There's always an exchange. The government is never going to say, look, you just live however you want and we'll foot the bill. That doesn't work in any planet or solar system. So we need to recognize that. But, you know, I, that's, that, I'll admit, the last few minutes of conversation are somewhat uh, soapbox preaching. Let me get back now to the Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 37, But as it was in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of, that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Nothing wrong with those things. So what's wrong with, the, with that picture? God's not involved in any of it. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. We're just living our life without God. And Jesus said that's the way it's going to be. Uh, as it was in the days of Noah, verse 39, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Folks, the windows of judgment in heaven, I believe that God's just cracking them open just a little bit. But one of these days, He's going to come to the window and He's just going to fling it wide open and judgment is once again coming to humanity and this earth. Window number three, take your Bibles and go to Malachi chapter number three. A couple quick points that I've got left and will be done this morning. Malachi chapter number three and verse number eight, Malachi three, verse number eight, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me, God says, but ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? God says, in tithes and offerings, ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Now listen, I, I, I understand that about nine out of every ten preachers that talk about Malachi 3, 8 through 10 are probably self-serving preachers. But that doesn't mean that this isn't a Bible truth that every single one of us as God's people should live by. We need to understand that the tithe is the Lord's. It's a tenth of our income. And it doesn't matter to me how you look at it. You say, well, should I give a tenth of my gross income or my net income? Should I tie to this or that? You know what? You, you need to do right by God. If you're thinking that way, you're missing the point. The tithe belongs to the Lord. And God says, you have robbed me in tithes and in offerings. Here's the point. Or as our current president says, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I take full responsibility that it was the previous president's fault. So here's the deal. We rob God when we hold back that which belongs to Him. I mean, you can slice it or dice it any way that you want. If something belongs to Him and we hold it back, we are robbing Him. We're robbing ourselves when we just give God the bare minimum. Why? Because the promise that God made of opening the windows of heaven. When you give God the bare minimum, then He just cracks the window open a little bit. The more that we give, the more that He opens the window of blessing in heaven. Jesus said in Luke 6.38, "...given it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together." Running over shall men give into your bosom, for with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Look, don't be reckless, but don't be faithless. Give. You cannot outgive God. And that has to do with your finances, that has to do with your service, your, your time, your energy, your labor. 
Take your Bibles and go to Philippians chapter number 2. I want you to consider a a very um, obscure character in the New Testament by the name of Epaphroditus. Now, I am glad that my mother did not name me Epaphroditus. That, that's just that's just a strange name to me. Um, what 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 would you name? Hey, Epath. Hey, Epi. Then they think you're a pen or something. I don't know. That was dumb. I, uh, Philippians chapter number two, and look with me at verse number twenty-five. Paul said, yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow Upon sorrow, I sent him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice that I may be the less sorrowful. Think about what's going on here, folks. You have a servant of the Lord, Epaphroditus, who is working so hard to take care of Paul's needs because the church at Philippi has not been sending any support, and Epaphroditus is doing it so that they don't have to because he cares about this church at Philippi. He's about working himself to death. He got so sick because he's working day and night. He's giving everything that he has to God. And you know what? God spared his life, and God healed him, and This is the point. Don't be reckless, but don't be faithless. We're living in the last year and a half where, yeah, you've heard me from the pulpit. We need to be common sense careful that we don't get sick, that we don't make other people sick, that we don't cause somebody else suffering. Hey, it's very real. It's not a hoax. It's not a conspiracy. But I fear that if we're not careful, we will start living and viewing life as nothing more than self-preservation rather than being here for the purpose that God has for us, that we're here to give and to serve. You know what? If there's something that you're supposed to do, do everything you possibly can to do it. Just maybe take some extra precautions. Do it a little bit differently than you would. But don't start living a spirit of fear and just viewing life out of nothing more than self-preservation. Stay busy and give to God. Don't be reckless. Don't expect God to keep you safe when you're doing foolish things. But if you're doing the right thing and you're doing it with wisdom, look, if you get sick or if you have problems, then you just got to step back and say, you know what? Either God's going to get me through this or he's not. But hey, I would a whole lot rather die on the battlefield than die in the rec room. Amen? I think there's a lot of Christians that are going to die in not even the recreation room, probably in the nursery. Last window, number four, is the window of Revelation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, almost done this morning, be patient with me. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 12 says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Listen, the windows of Revelation are tinted windows. You ever seen a car with tinted windows and you can't, you can't see who's on the inside. And the only way that you can see what's on the inside is to get number one really, really close. And as you get really, really close, before you start seeing inside through that dark glass, you start seeing the reflection of your own face. 
hey, we've got a book right here that is the window of Revelation. You want God to show you some things, then open up the window and he'll show you. Now, beware that before you start seeing Jesus, you're going to start seeing yourself. And it may not be a pretty picture. You might see some things that are real and true. It's like, wow, I thought I was doing better than that. Uh, no, you're not. But praise the Lord, God says, just repent, get it fixed, confess it, and move on. And the more that we do that and the closer that we get to that tinted window, the more that we start seeing Jesus on the other side. John 12, verse 21, the same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Do you have a desire to see Jesus? Then get close to the window of Revelation. In conclusion, I'd like to recap the things that we've already talked about. Number one, we saw the window of provision. God takes care of His people. Number two, we saw the window of judgment. Folks, it's just a matter of time till judgment is coming. Number three, the window of blessing. Hey, don't rob God and don't rob yourself. Be a giver, be generous, be faithful rather than stingy. Number four, the window of revelation. You can see some things if you're just willing to get close enough to the window. Last thing I want to say, and we'll close, just like that servant of the king, you believe that God can? The question is, do you believe that He will? Are there windows of heaven? Absolutely. There's windows, and God will open them up if we'll just have faith and trust that He will. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the windows of heaven, the windows of provision, the windows of judgment, the windows of blessing, and Lord, the window of revelation. We thank you, God, that there is a connection between us here on this earth and and you there in heaven. We pray now that you'd help us to make application uh, according to what we've heard here today. Have your will and way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.